This episode of Wasteland may contain mature themes, profanity, and descriptions of sex, graphic violence, and criminal activity. Listener discretion is advised. I said sooner or later that damn crazy black magic would climax in human sacrifice. This is the first time, to my knowledge, any law enforcement units have actually uncovered a coven. Volusia County Sheriff Ed Duff to the Daytona Beach News Journal, May of 1973. The article this quote was taken from is titled, Witchcraft Murder Misnamed? The subtitle reads, Coven was amateurish. In it, Daytona Beach Police Detective Fred Perrin was quoted as saying that the murder of Ross Michael Cochran was no longer being considered a satanic ritual. The group had little, if any, organization. They played the role members of a cult as children might play cowboys and Indians, he said. Detective Perrin also speculated that Mike may have been murdered for making the false claim that he was a narcotics informant due to a falling out he had with members of the group. Coincidentally, sharing the same page of newspaper was another article titled, Boyles Says Charge of Blame, Asinine. It was in this article that the Reverend George von Hilsheimer attempted to lay the blame for Mike's murder on the doorstep of the state attorney's office, specifically naming state attorney Stephen Boyles and his chief investigator Jack Linatti, who initiated the investigation into the Green Valley School that culminated in the February raid and the closure of the school. Ross Michael Cochran was taken from the safety and security of Green Valley and allowed to wander by officials who knew his past criminal and psychiatric history. If I were in Mr. Linati's seat, I would feel a strong moral guilt for the boy's murder. It should be noted that in the Champus hearings in July of 1974, detailed in the last two episodes, Assistant State Attorney John Upchurch testified that, according to Mike, the teenager had escaped from Green Valley after being placed on Scrub Island. He also stated that he had been shackled and imprisoned in the facility's bomb shelter at least 25 times. Boyles told the news journal that Lenati would not be responding to Von Hilsheimer's accusations due to the pending case against the school. Boyles himself stated, I might add that experience has proved restraint and non-dignification to be the only successful defenses to asininity. The court proceedings in the murder of Ross Michael Cochran started less than two weeks after the discovery of his body. After the initial arrests and the sorting out of the transients thought to reside at 27 North Grandview Avenue, police had in custody 11 youths ages 17 to 23 who were charged with Mike's murder. They were Deborah Shook, Kenneth Francis, Charles Page, Cindy Black, Howard Wallace, Nick Frazee, Stephen Skaggs, Charles Dunn, David Hester, John Carpenter, and John Colbert. All but Frazee waived their right to a preliminary hearing. A grand jury was convened, and on Thursday, May 17, 1973, ten of the suspects were indicted on first-degree murder charges. The only one missing was Cindy Black, a 17-year-old from Rexdale, Ontario. 
She quickly pleaded guilty and agreed to become a state witness for the remainder of the case. On June 8, 1973, a 12th suspect named Jerry Smith, 22, was arrested in his hometown of Chicago. Judge Uriel Blount presided over the preliminary phases of the prosecution, which broke down into the following laundry list of charges. Kidnapping or false imprisonment, assault with attempt to commit murder in the first degree, use of a weapon, bottle, knife, needles, or club, and the commission of a felony, two counts of assault with a deadly weapon, two counts of aggravated assault, conspiracy to commit murder in the first degree, and buying, receiving, or aiding in the concealment of stolen property, Cochran's wallet. It was Ken Francis, Deborah Shook, Ken Frazee, John Colbert, and David Hester who received the highest number of charges, with Francis taking all eight and Shook, Frazee, Colbert, and Hester taking seven. By June 28th, the defendants were able to enter a plea of innocent to the charges, with Hester and Wallace pleading their innocence by reason of insanity. Each defendant was to be tried separately. A change of venue was requested, but by August, Judge Blount delayed the trials as he was still awaiting the results of psychiatric examinations conducted on the defendants. All were judged competent, except for John Colbert. In September, in exchange for a reduction of charges and their testimony, Nick Frazee pled guilty to third-degree murder and aggravated assault, Charles Page pled guilty to false imprisonment, and Howard Wallace pled guilty to aggravated battery on Cochran. David Hester was the first to go to trial. On October 17, 1973, Deborah Ann Shook, who had also pleaded guilty to lesser charges in exchange for a more lenient sentence, took the stand and referred to Hester as the, quote, high priest of the coven at 27 North Grandview. Shook stated, one time he got into an argument with someone about his satanic power. He said, I can cut myself and not feel it. This guy didn't believe him. He grabbed a razor blade and cut his arm, and then he smeared his blood all over the guy's face. Shook told the court that on April 27th, when Hester and the others returned from murdering Ross Michael Cochran, he told her, I was going to use him for a sacrifice, but the knife was too dull. I had to use a log to bash his head in. Shook contended that she was not home when Cochran was tortured, but returned to find him restrained in the basement. She testified that she went upstairs and never saw him again. Nick Frazee appeared on behalf of the prosecution and outlined what happened the night of April the 27th. Charles Page had gone to get the car to take Cochran away. When he got back, they put him in the trunk, and we left. He identified himself, Page, Hester, and Francis as the passengers. When they reached the wooded area off State Road 415, he said, Everybody got out of the car. Page opened the trunk and helped Cochran out, and Francis and Hester tied him up. Frazee accused Hester of wielding the murder weapon, a log. He hit Cochran four or five times with it. It sounded like his skull cracked. I heard a gurgling sound, and the log splintered two or three times. Hester's defense contended that Hester had only struck Cochran once to knock him out so the others would leave him alone. It was Francis, not Hester, who had delivered the killing blow to Cochran, something which Frazee corroborated. Hester had simply been trying to protect Cochran as much as he could in a situation spiraling quickly out of control. I don't think you'd want David Hester protecting your life, Hester's defense attorney Don Jacobson told the jury. It was a stupid, foolish, silly way to do it, but it was the only stupid, foolish, silly way he knew how to do it. The defense argued that one of the other defendants had attempted to cut Cochran's throat, but Frazee denied ever having seen a knife. Shook described the weapon in question as a dull fishing knife that had been blessed as a sacrificial knife. 
David Hester's trial lasted for four days, ending on Thursday, October 18th. It took the jury only two and a half hours to declare him guilty of first-degree murder, false imprisonment, and the use of a weapon in commission of a felony. Judge Blount sentenced him to life in prison on Friday the 19th. Ken Francis was next, with his trial commencing on Tuesday, December 11th, 1973. And during these proceedings, what seemed to be the most plausible motive for Ross Michael Cochran's murder was put forward. Ruth Rogers, whose written affidavit would be read at the Champus hearings in July of 1974, testified that Ken Francis had made threats about Cochran in her presence while she was employed at Green Valley. Rogers stated, Francis said, someone ought to shut Cochran up before he has the school shut down for good. Rogers' husband, also a Green Valley employee, testified saying that he, Francis, was going to get rid of him, Cochran, as soon as possible. Cindy Black also testified at Francis's trial. She said Francis had announced Ross Michael Cochran had knocked on Green Valley School and he was going to, quote, do a job on him. Howard Wallace appeared on behalf of the prosecution. He related that it was Francis who said he had hit Cochran with the log, quote, until his brains ran out. Wallace also said when Cochran entered the second floor apartment on April 27th, Francis stated, we've got a narc in the room. Francis took the stand during the third day of his trial. He stated that though he did tell Ruth Rogers' husband that he wanted to get rid of Cochran, he didn't mean he wanted to kill him. Francis described the night before the murder when he had chased Cochran down the Daytona Beach boardwalk. After that incident, he said he returned to Roach Haven, took PCP, LSD, and smoked marijuana. When I woke up, Cochran was in the room. He said he told the others present that Cochran was, quote, the one who ratted on the school and was responsible for the raid. He said this angered his companions. When he saw me, he tried to run, but they caught him. I asked him if he had turned state's evidence against the school, and he admitted it. Francis stated that throughout the torture of Cochran, he was high on drugs. He said, I didn't know what I was doing or why. Francis denied ever striking Cochran with the log. Francis's defense attorney, Richard Krauss, asked Francis, did you want Cochran to die? No, Francis answered. Much like David Hester's, Ken Francis's trial was uncommonly brief, lasting all of two days. On December 13, 1973, after a mere half hour of deliberation, the jury returned a verdict of guilty. Ken Francis was sentenced to life in prison on the 14th. Later that month, Nick Frazee received two concurrent terms of five years for the conviction of third-degree murder and aggravated assault. Howard Wallace was also sentenced to the same length for the breaking and entering of a motor vehicle. The car used to transport Cochran was presumably stolen. Stephen Skaggs received three concurrent sentences of five years. Charles Page, Deborah Shook, and Jerry Smith all served 11 months in county jail. Hester and Francis both attempted to appeal their sentences, but their convictions were upheld. The trial was, however, not the last time Deborah Ann Shook would be heard from. In a disturbing postscript, on May 28, 1975, the former Satanic Bride made headlines again, this time in Marietta, Georgia. Shook had been hitchhiking on May 8th with a man named Lloyd Walker. They were picked up by another man named Jack Howard Potts. Potts had just fled Daytona Beach, a coincidence bordering on the unbelievable, after murdering a man named Charles Brewer, an employee at the High Black Funeral Home. Potts had been purchasing drugs from Brewer, and when he was unable to procure more, Potts shot him in the back of the head on or around May 4th. 
Potts headed north, and on May 8th found himself in Marietta, roughly seven hours away from Daytona Beach. He and his girlfriend, Norma Blackwell, were headed to a party with another couple, Eugene Snyder and Donna Glaze. During the drive, Potts and Snyder got into an argument. Snyder was driving, and Potts ordered him to pull over to the side of the road, where Potts shot him twice in the face. Snyder was still alive and managed to toss the keys out the window into an open field. Potts then took Blackwell and Glaze and fled on foot to a nearby home. There, they met a man named Michael Priest and convinced him they had been in an accident. They asked Priest for a ride, but Potts soon shot Priest and killed him. Potts then headed south with Blackwell and Glaze. Even though he had been shot twice, Eugene Snyder managed to alert the authorities. Meanwhile, Donna Glaze managed to escape when Potts stopped at a motel on I-75 in rural Georgia. Not long after this, Potts picked up Lloyd Walker and Deborah Ann Shook. They were stopped by Georgia police once they reached Norma Blackwell's home, though Potts shot the officer's car several times, disabling it. Potts, Blackwell, Walker, and Shook entered a nearby farmhouse, and there they engaged 20 police officers in a 16-hour standoff that culminated in a violent shootout. During the melee, Potts was wounded in the stomach and the throat when most of his tongue was shot out. Walker was killed, and a police officer was wounded. Jack Potts was charged with two counts of first-degree murder, attempted murder, armed robbery, aggravated assault, and kidnapping. Norma Blackwell was charged as well, minus the murders. Deborah Ann Shook was charged with burglary, and after that, I can't find any other mention of her. Ken Francis died in the Florida Department of Corrections at the age of 46. As for David Hester, I've been unable to locate his offender records. When I started this project, I honestly didn't know where it would take me. From the outset, I felt like I was dredging up an old, infected secret, something that needed to be pulled into the light. Once I discovered the connection between Ross Michael Cochran and the alleged abuses at Green Valley, my inner conspiracy theorists started working overtime. It wouldn't have been the first time a death occurred to keep an institution's dirty laundry from being exposed. Could Ross Michael Cochran's murder have been sanctioned by Green Valley as a form of retaliation? Though it was my initial unfounded suspicion, I eventually realized that was probably not true. In late 1972 and early 1973, the Green Valley story was heavily reported in the local Volusia County newspapers. It wasn't a secret what the staff had been accused of. The only thing that was perplexing was how the school continued to operate under such a pall of scrutiny and criticism, even if regular classes were not a daily occurrence, as has been alleged. Ross Michael Cochran wasn't killed to preserve Green Valley or George Von Hilsheimer's legacy. The reputation of the school was as bad as it had ever been even before Cochran was murdered, and Von Hilsheimer's struggles with the legal system, as well as in the court of public opinion, are well documented. I don't think George Von Hilsheimer was an evil man. If the former students and staff at Green Valley are to be believed, his intentions were of the highest order. It was simply his and his staff's execution of these intentions that was terribly, terribly flawed. He wanted to do something radically different, and he did, but his policies seemed to help as many children as they hurt. 
I reached out to a former Green Valley staff member whom I was able to locate online. I won't refer to them by name, but they had this to say about Von Hilsheimer. He was an idealist and extremely generous in his care for both children and staff without other resources. He could also be a madman, bombastic and egotistical. I can't say more than that. As I think I've demonstrated, whenever Von Hilsheimer is discussed, this duality is often brought up. On the one hand is the man that simply wanted to make the next generation into a formidable group of self-reliant and intelligent people. And on the other is the man that didn't have an issue with encouraging a child to dig their own grave as a form of therapeutic punishment. But there's nothing I've read about Von Hilsheimer, as difficult a man as he seemed to be, that would indicate he was retaliatory or intentionally cruel. He was simply uninformed on the topic of long-lasting trauma and mental illness. A fan of the show reached out to me on Instagram earlier this year and asked me if I thought George von Hilsheimer had anything to do with the murder of Ross Michael Cochran. Now I can definitively answer no. Based on everything I've learned over the last two years, neither von Hilsheimer nor Green Valley were culpable in Cochran's death. Had he lived to process the trauma they inflicted on him, perhaps another conversation could be had. But it would seem that Ross Michael Cochran was murdered simply because Ken Francis didn't like the fact that his testimony was instrumental in shutting down Green Valley. Consider what's been alleged during the hearings of 1974. The students of Green Valley ran amok about the campus and throughout Volusia County. Drugs and sex were readily available to any young person who wanted to partake. Traditional classes weren't mandatory, and the residents of the school were able to escape what can be assumed were their negative home lives. It was billed as a school for troubled children, after all. For some, Green Valley was a party, and Ken Francis just didn't want that party to end. I spent two years researching this case, attempting to contact anyone who would talk to me, and ended up with my nose pressed against the proverbial brick wall. During my first few days of research, I decided I had to see the house for myself. And even though I was a regular beachside wanderer during my teens and 20s, I wasn't exactly sure where the house was located. But I wanted to see if I could find it. I didn't expect it to look the same, but being that the area around Main Street has always been old and decrepit, I hoped the original structure would still be intact in some way. The idea that I could possibly knock on the door and be allowed to enter the basement sat in the back of my mind, unvoiced. I tried not to get my hopes up. What I soon discovered was that there is no 27 North Grandview. Not anymore. Where the house once stood, there's just a parking lot, butting up to the back of a Main Street bar. Still, I got out of my car, and I stood there on the spot, or as close to the spot as I could reasonably estimate. Obviously, the basement had been filled in, taking with it that terrible day in April of 1973. I didn't feel or sense anything. If some sort of psychic detritus had been left behind, if such a thing could even be said to exist, it was long gone. It's been 50 years since Ross Michael Cochran's life was cut short by a group of burnout, self-styled Satanists. It's almost as if Daytona itself has forgotten, and in doing so, the landmarks associated with the witchcraft murder of 1973 have physically faded away. Maybe it was for the best that I didn't receive a lot of replies to my inquiries, that I was unable to get anyone to go on the record, that I gleaned the entirety of this series from archived newspaper articles, that the house where this tragedy occurred is gone. 
It just doesn't seem that anyone involved, even tangentially, wants to revisit the case. Not that I blame them. They just want to forget it. If they even remembered it in the first place. So after spending two years trying to assemble this information into something resembling a coherent narrative, now that it's finally done, I guess, now I can forget too. This episode of Wasteland was researched, written, produced, recorded, edited, and in some areas, scored by me, Michael Paul Anthony. If you'd like to contact the show, the email address is wastelandpodfl at gmail.com. I want to thank you for listening, and if you like what you heard, please share it with a friend. Until next time.